Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and welcome to this episode of Seen Any Good Films Lately. On the podcast today, you'll hear about the latest villain to get a spin-off movie, Tilda and Pedro are together at last, and we dive into the film world of a New York indie director. Who are you? You look vaguely familiar. I look stunning. I don't know about familiar, darling. It's screwball, it's almost slapstick, but it's so light and the and the dialogue is so funny. You heard Emma's Stone and Thompson in Disney's Cruella, the origin story of Cruella de Vil, and the filmmaker, well that was Ira Sachs, whose latest film, Frankie, is set in Portugal and stars Isabel Huppert. Ira faces the sagful questions and tells us about his movie loves, past and present, right after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. It has been great to get back in front of a big screen again. I was at the glorious Regent Street Cinema to watch Cruella, starring Emma Stone, who I'm very fond of and always love watching, and Emma Thompson. Same. It's the origin story of the 101 Dalmatians villain Cruella de Vil, tracing how she, played by Emma Stone, got so devilish from a little orphan girl called Estella, who just wants to be a fashion designer in 1960s London, but she gets in with an artful Dodger-style gang of chums, played by Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser. She gets a job at Liberty, and then she gets a gig with a grand dame designer, the Baroness, played by Emma Thompson, who rather takes to her new employee and her punkish spirit. And she gives her a new nom de fashion, Cruella. Your hair, is it real? Like my ball. I like to make an impact. Right. What was your name? Cruella. Oh. Hmm. That's quite fabulous. And you designed this? You did, actually. 1965 collection. Oh, no wonder I love it. It's mine. Then comes the twist that sets Cruella on a deadly collision course with her mentor, the Baroness, unfurling as a series of heist-style sequences involving fashion shows and stolen jewellery and crosses and double crosses. This is from the director of I, Tonya, about the deadly figure skating feud between Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. And you can see that same dog-eat-dog nature in this. And it's pretty good fun, I have to say. It looks good, it's nicely performed, but it's just a little confused by its role as a Disney franchise, to be honest. It comes over as a live-action caper with some dodgy Dick Van Dykish accents. I mean, why cast Paul Walter Hauser here? I really like watching him in Cobra Kai and um, in Itonia, but here, I don't know what he's doing. He's rather lost with the London accent. Uh, there are too many twists and turns in it and big reveals, a plot development too far. And yeah, it's 20 minutes too long. It needed either more laughs or more threat to be really bitchy. Also, some of the London locations are just wrong. You know, it might look good to American eyes, all the red buses and sort of Houses of Parliament sort of stuff, but I don't like it when, for example, you repeatedly say, oh, that's the Regent's Park fountain, and it's just not in Regent's Park. It's not there. It just isn't. It's not a mistake you need to make, right? That annoys me. That said, 
I did enjoy it. It looks great. The costumes by Jenny Bevan are brilliant. Uh, some of the fashion ideas are strong. Uh, and I can really see Emma Stone doing the part again. And if she did, I'd watch it. The interview on Seen Any Good Films Lately is supported by Strike. S-T-R-Y-K-K. The distilled drink with all the spirit, none of the alcohol. Just go to their website and you can find some articles by me about cinema and going back to the cinema. And there are links to all our episodes. Plus, you can order your perfect companion drinks for your movie watching and get 40% off if you enter the voucher code JASON40, all at strike.com. This week, my guest is New York filmmaker Ira Sachs. Although for his latest film, Frankie, he's on foreign soil following a family gathering in Portugal where grande dame diva actress, played who else but by Isabelle Huppert, Frankie, has summoned her family for a big holiday and a showdown. She's going to reveal something. So as they gather, these various personalities connect and clash and there are surprises in store for Huppert's best friend in the business, an actress played by Marisa Tomei, who has brought her new boyfriend along, sort of boyfriend, played by Greg Kinnear. Uh, although... Actually, Frankie really wants to set Marisa Tomai's character up with her own son, who's played by Jeremy Renier. But it's very confusing, as you'll see. Uh, the new boyfriend, Kinnear, has some plans. You know what I was thinking? What were you thinking? I was thinking I want us to spend more time together. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was, had this idea of just getting rid of the apartment up in uh, in the city and just moving into the house in Watermill full-time, making a real home out of it. All these plans all of a sudden. Well, we'd have a beautiful house on the water and a nice apartment that I'd help with the rent on in the Upper West Side. I mean, we'd have two homes. We don't need anything more than that. What do you say? With more time in Watermill, Eileen, you could write or paint or do some of those other things you always want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, without my apartment, we'd, we'd, we'd both save money. You wouldn't have to work so hard. Mm-hmm. I want to be with you. For us to be together. Ira Sachs is a director I've long been intrigued by. His gorgeous 2014 film Love is Strange starred Alfred Molina and John Lithgow uh, and was about the future of their rent-controlled apartment in Manhattan. Uh, And Little Men from 2016 featured Kinnear with Jennifer Ely and a property they'd inherited in Brooklyn. So before I ask him the sagful questions and about his movie Life and Loves, I began by wondering about Frankie and the gorgeous location where Ira Sachs shot it. Sintra is about 30 minutes outside of Lisbon. It's kind of a retreat for the last two or 300 years for the royal family and very wealthy people. And so there's there's like a number of kind of like almost castles and, and parks that are kind of unlike any other place in the world. It's a really magical town. So so you thought, well, you know, I'm going to do a film in Europe and I want to spend maybe, you know, seven, eight weeks there. I'm going to pick, I'll pick Sintra. 
because that's that's what I'm allowed to do because I'm a director. I wanted to make a film about a family on a vacation, actually based on a Satyajit Ray film that I had seen called Kanchanjunga, which is a film made in the early 60s about a family on a vacation in the Himalayas. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that one. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's his first color film. It's a wonderful film and it's set in a day. It begins from morning to the late afternoon. It's about, um, there's a central crisis, which is, is sort of the drama of the film, but there's all these little tangent stories. And so I had always been interested in, in kind of a, remaking that film. And so when I started working with Isabel, it seemed like the perfect project for us. And then my co-writer is actually from Brazil, but his family is from Portugal. So he knew Centra and suggested Centra for us. And this will do, you said, yes. And it, it, just yes. Look, it just looks fabulous. And it looks like the sort of, uh, the house is such a character in the movie as well. And that's what I think is key sometimes in these films. Yes, we, there were two locations, a kind of Kenta, which is the, the word for villa or, or you know, old elaborate home um, that we found. And also the scene at the end of the film, which is very specific location on the top of a mountain that I was very affected by. And sort of those two locations were what we knew gave us what we needed to build the film. Yes. And I think they were. And, and you know, it makes sense for the family to be there, for them to come there. And it, it provides a certain texture to the movie that allows the dialogue to sort of float in on it. You know, I just for another podcast i just watched um, journey to italy again uh the russellini film mm. and i was thinking about you know that film has been very important to me as well and, and i think what what a film like that does and i hope frankie does as well is that it allows not only is the location a character but actually space and air and nature create a kind of ambivalent relationship to to the text to, to dialogue to characters and it's the contrast between the very mundane things that some of these characters are talking about with the kind of profound of nature that I think is very exciting for me in making this movie. I'm wondering if that's something that has always been part of your filmmaking. I know property's always been something about it, your filmmaking. I've always loved mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, particularly uh, the one with Alf Molina and John Lithgow and, and with Love, is strange. Love is strange and with Little Men, it, the property is very key in, in, in yes. New York and in London, cities like ours, we're very, very keen on these things. So that, that that's something that seems to have a have a sort of the well, thematic. I think the relationship between money and real estate, and as you say, property and intimacy, family and love, and I think how those objects become factors in in both the drama of everyday life but also the meaning of everyday life is, is important you're quite a romantic filmmaker you know at, mm -hmm. at, at, at heart mm -hmm. i always feel your films always make me cry and they, but, but they they do have this very practical decision making thing and almost chekhovian sort of you know uh, summit meetings kind of being held between you know functionaries and the family that i could say these are the things that interest me but it's that's almost not put in the right way it's like this is how i sense and understand how we are in the world how was working in europe for you after the after love is strange and um little men with yeah. such such new york movies i will say that i worked with a, a primarily portuguese crew which was wonderful and felt not dissimilar to working with an American independent crew in the sense that they were all very committed to the art form. In New York, I often work with people who are younger than me. I was working with a set of collaborators who, are my, who were my peers. And that was really nice to work with a bunch of people who were, who were my age. And so had my 
um, very similar experiences, which we could bring to the movie. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think it fits the material pretty well uh, in that respect. It needs a certain wisdom to, to, to work in material like this. Yeah, I was working with very mature, mature artists. I feel like during the pandemic, there was a question of like, well, what is important to any of us? And what are we able to do? And what will be possible? And all those things became questions and are still questions, but I will say I, I feel a new commitment, a renewed commitment to the feature film and to the to the art film and to things like abstraction and, and ambiguity, all these words which I feel are are precious to me. Yes. Well they're not really part of the the streaming landscape, are they? Uh, there, there, there's different concerns when you when you when you have a mass audience and, and when and when you need to appeal to you know when you're making a corporate work mm. anything on the streamers is, is has some level relationship to a corporate creation well it, it's a very that's a very good way to set up because i'm going to ask you the uh, the key question here ira sax is have, have you seen any good films lately i saw a great film two nights ago um it's called easy living it's directed by mitchell lyson um, i know that 19, name. 1937 yeah um gene arthur and edward arnold it is a depression era film about a about a poor shop girl who who by accident gets involved with a wealthy millionaire it is written by preston sturgis i think as good as any of his films uh watched it with my husband and our two nine-year-old kids we all are now going down a mitchell lyson um or Leeson is maybe how you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, he's one of those directors that occasionally gets a sort of festival well, retrospective, it, but I, I've never never actually sort of managed to catch it. Well, Criterion is doing nine of their films, so we're going to go down the, the down the rabbit hole. And, <laughs> uh, is it, and I is will it say, Screwball, that, that one with the Sturgis it, script? It, it, is, it is Screwball. It's almost slapstick, but it's so light, and the, and the dialogue is so funny, and the performances are just... I don't know. I enjoyed it more than the last two Preston Sturgis I've seen. I have to say, I just was like really, really taken with it. Hello? Hello? Hello! Are we alone? I, I mean, can you talk? Good. Well, you just made $18,000. What do you mean $18,000? That's right. Two times nine. Call me at once if you get any more news. Goodbye. Oh, wait, 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 what did you say? What? Rude, what are you... $18,000? <laughs> oh, well, no, no, this one is $200,000. That's insane! But I said... Johnny! I'm gonna buy a dog. You know, one of those great big woolly ones, Johnny, with the bangs all over its Mary, Mary, Mary! I, I know it'll have fleas, but I don't care. I've wanted one all my life. Oh, snap out of it, please. Johnny, Johnny, we've just made $18,000. $9,000 for you and $9,000 for me. Oh. <gasps> one of those great big woolly ones, Johnny. Is there a doctor in the house? I recently saw White Heat. Mm. Also, which is the the James Cagney movie, uh, which I'd never seen about a gangster and his mother, and it's it's the it's the energy of those films, the economy of like you know they're all like seventy eight minutes or eighty three minutes, that they just like they're relentless 
and I think that energy is really, really inspiring. Yes, there's not 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 really a shot wasted. They didn't have time to waste anything. No, no. In the... they, they they also would like teach you as a director to to really um, beware of actors' pauses. It's very hard to do. It's one of the hardest things to do for an actor, for a director, is to tell actors to to speak faster. But watching these movies, I'm like, that should be my only note: faster. But you know, Faster. you know, it's Michael Caine's fault. All of this with his screen acting masterclass, and that's why he sort of speaks. That's why he speaks in those halting sentences because you can't cut the things. You know, if you, if they pause halfway through the sentence, you can't cut. You've got to keep the camera on them. You get more screen time. He's yes. taught them all. He's taught them all this. I mean, it's interesting because I like slow movies, but I, I mean, I, slower movies and slowly paced. I watched Journey to Italy yesterday, which was so fantastic, and clearly, it's a pace that is. Is, is, a, is not like today's pace for mm. most things. But the actors don't speak slow. <laughs> <laughs> so in White Heat, which I haven't seen for years... Um, when, it's when like he... the best performance you will ever see. So when, but when he gets to the it... top of the world, Ma, yeah. bit, which you think is such a sort of famous moment in cinema, yeah. do, do, do you think, oh, God, what a cliche, or does he, does, does he come upon you like as a natural thing and imagine yourself for the first time you've ever seen it? You go, oh, my God, an iconic moment that I didn't know about exactly that it's it's such a fresh performance i mean i sent it to an actor i'm working with now and i said just watch jim i feel like forget michael kane some people should just be watching jimmy cagney and particularly in white heat but because it's like it's just it's so alive it is so contradictory it's also really fun i think wonderful great actors understand the idea of pleasure and i think pleasure is really important in a performance Fascinating, actually. Yeah, pleasure is it a, a key thing. I shall use that in the future. Actually, she'll she'll hone in on the pleasure. And where do you get the gas truck? We got one stashed behind a barn. Bought it with our own dough. Twelve grand. You bought a gas truck? Yeah. What's the matter? Forget how to steal one? Maybe it ain't so bad, Cody. Twelve grand gets you fifty. Fence to fifty and you get twenty. Then what are you gonna do with that? Buy two more gas trucks? Joint like that's got the serial number of every bill. Any guy says he can fence 50 grand of it's crazy. The trader ain't crazy. The trader? Who's he? My manager, kid. Come on, let's get a look at that $12,000 doll. Oh, Cody. My radio ain't working again. Oh, no. What do you want for it? Unemployment insurance? Can I go down to San Bredou and get it fixed? Nobody leaves here unless I say so. Now, you... What's the matter, baby? I'm not gonna hurt you. Yeah. Wouldn't read your comic books. Good girl. What was the first yeah. film you saw at the cinema, Ira? Um, it's funny because my with my kids, I just remembered their first film was Paddington Two. For some reason, well, um, the greatest have... film ever made, according to <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. Now, ousting Citizen yeah. Kane, so they they chose well. Wow, <laughs> I haven't heard that. Yeah, I don't even I don't even want to study that more. You know, my mother took us to see, or actually, maybe a friend of my mother's took us to see Fantasia on the day that my parents told me they were going to get divorced. So that's a really early memory. I was like four years old, so I just remember. I almost remember the story more than I. I've never seen Fantasia since. I also remember this is like this crazy memory that must not be true, but I believe in fourth grade, my French teacher in Memphis, Tennessee rolled in a 16 millimeter projector and played for our class last year at Marienbach. In fourth grade? <laughs> yes, and I'm still 
I've never seen it again. I've never been able to see a Renee film. It totally destroyed anything that I might have um, loved. But I'm always like, did that happen or did I make that up? Is that a true, true story or is it just completely a myth, mythological fiction? Un grand palace international, immense, baroque, au décor fastueux mais glacé. Un inconnu air de salle en salle, longe d'interminables corridors à la recherche d'une femme. Il lui dit qu'ils se sont rencontrés déjà l'année dernière. I used to be able to remember the movie theater where I saw every movie. You could ask me any movie from the 70s and I can probably tell you I saw it at the park or I saw it at the Memphian or I saw it at the Malco Quartet or I saw it at the Ridgeway. Like I have, I, I had a very strong memory. All the location. president's men. All the president's men I didn't see till I was in college. So ah. I saw it in a dining hall in, in my university in this in the a little bit later than that <laughs> but yeah. i remember where i saw Patton, and i remember where i saw carrie and i remember where i saw dog day afternoon and oh, I, do you know, you know what i was going to pick dog day afternoon as a 70s yes, the movie. plaza the, the plaza. plaza in in whatever it came out no it's in probably... no it's a 72 oh, i'm sorry the plaza in memphis tennessee in memphis tennessee yeah. fantastic <laughs> yeah. was there a film that changed your life that either from watching or from making i i am um, uh, watching, I will say, I'm always open to a film changing my life, and many, many films have. So, um, Cassavetes in the 80s, when I discovered his movies in Paris, changed my life. Um, Ken Loach in the 90s, when I discovered Kess, Looks and Smiles, and Family Life, those three films changed my life. Wow. Specifically, those three films. Um, Ozu, a festival of Ozu in the 2000s changed my life. Before I Forget by Jacques Mulot changed my life. Sachiji Ray changed my life. And Piala changes my life constantly. Maurice Piala. Maurice Piala. Yeah, yeah, yeah you've, so, changed a, you've changed your life lots. <laughs> well, you know, I think films, um, Chantal Ackerman, Jatui Il-El, um, Notes from Home, certain films are like I can't remember a time before I saw them. They mean so much to me. Oh, that's great, Ira. I love, I love hearing that. Actually, what about your professionally? Was there a film that, you know, as you, you know, launched? Uh, my first film um, was called The Delta, and I made it because I could, and no one told me I couldn't. And so it seemed really easy. I mean, it wasn't easy, but it seemed easy to make. So, And then my next film took me nine years to get off the ground. It was called 40 Shades of Blue. And I would say the fact that I was able to eventually make that next film and that I'm happy with the film that I made, I would say, and then keep the lights on, change my life because I gave up on the system of independent cinema and I figured out a way to produce my own work, which meant um, becoming a fundraiser and, and, and doing things back to a kind of independent stage where I didn't expect things. So I think once I learned not to expect things, then I became a, a stronger filmmaker. Had some wonderful music in to keep the lights on. Had some uh, some beautiful David yeah, Axelrod stuff, did it? No, no, it's all Arthur Russell. Arthur, Arthur Russell, excuse me. I, yeah, I have yeah, yeah. I have a David Axelrod mix, uh, selection of Arthur Russell, and uh, excuse me, I uh, can use it too. Yeah, it has that beautiful Arthur Russell stuff. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. All the scores, Arthur Russell. Mm, yeah, but great work that was. Did you have a film poster on your wall as a <laughs> teenager? I stole a picture of Susan Sarandon on the cover of a movie magazine, and it was over my bed during my entire childhood. So it was not a movie poster. I had a I had a cutout of Chaplin in Charlotte, and I had uh, as as kind of as the tramp, and I had a picture of the Marx Brothers on my wall. But it was really right above my 
bed as a gay boy, I had Susan Sarandon. <laughs> and why her? You know, I'd seen it. It was like a movie. It was called like Movie Maker or something. And, and, and somehow my friend and I, we had really loved her in Atlantic City. Yeah. And it, there was something. And, and so it was like available to steal. So part of the fun was I stole this poster <laughs> and then put it, you know. What do you have It wasn't now? really Susan Sarandon. Well, I know I you have your Balanchine and you have a Keith Herring behind you there, but I don't know if you have. Yes. Um, uh, movie posters. Actually, um, I just pulled out from my bed, under the bed, uh, a Looks and Smiles poster that I have and a Lulu poster that I have and a Don't Look Now, Bob Dylan. Wow. I have those three movies. And what are you going to do with them? I have a basement. And so they're up on the wall. Or actually, they're leaning against the wall in the basement. Perfect. But yeah. like, but a basement that we use, so I can see them, and I'm actually really happy to see them. And Lulu is up on the wall because we there was something on the wall that needed to be covered, so we just covered it with this Lulu poster, and so I have Isabella Pair on my wall. I was just going to say that you know that's the inspiration. Oh, I better work with her because she did the, yeah. the amazing uh, Vedakin's Lulu. Who, who directed her in? This? Not Vedakin. It's not Vedakin. Oh, it's not. It's, it's not, her. It's her with um. It's oh. Maurice. It's with Gerard Depardieu. Yes. And, I, it's, and he plays Lulu, L-O-U-L-O-U. So it's not based on Vitekin. It's, ah. it's, it's another film that they made in the early 80s with Maurice Pierre. It's a Pierre as well. Okay. Yeah. If I could give you the gift of time travel, what movie set would you visit? Now, you can either you can go for a day, you go for the whole shoot. You know, if it's if it's yours in Sintra, you're going to go for the months, you know, because it's nice. But yeah. you could go for a day when a scene's being made and go just to see it, the whole thing. You can visit the lot right. you can go on location. What would you which one do you fancy? Well, I, I for 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 Frankie, I was so um, almost obsessively looking closely, close study. Like I would like to say like an artist maybe would go do close study in a museum instead of just like adoration of, of Eric Romare's work. And so I think if I could have been on the set of Claire's Knee, I would be. I would have been very, very interested to watch that. Fascinating. That would have been because, amazing. Yeah. Because he actually worked often with a very small crew, and to to be with Eric Romare and Nestor Alamandros. Wonderful. I don't, I don't know what I would have learned because they would have been speaking in French, and but I just would have been pretty interested. I think yeah. Well, I think you you've you, you've you got quite a lot from them anyway. I can see some DNA shared DNA. And you know what I love about the two of them is that their sexuality, um, as a heterosexual man and a homosexual man, they the desire that they found together in the human body and in flesh, both male and female flesh is very noticeable in the films. They're very horny films. Oh, God, absolutely they are. And they get away with it, A, because they're French, but it's all they yes. do. Claire's Knee would probably, if it was made by Woody Allen, we would not be able to watch that movie these days. We would be cancelled. But certainly, I think, think Roma's all right for some certainly reason. Not. Have you ever fallen in love at the movies, Ira? You know, I'm actually more thinking of the opposite, which is seeing uh, bitter tears of Petra von Kant and, and after a relationship and being so extraordinarily devastated uh, because it's about the end of a relationship in a, in a totally theatrical way. So that's what comes to my mind first. Have I ever fallen in love? Well, I feel like I have, I fell in love with, with a feeling. I'm thinking of L'Homme Blessé, the Chirot film, and, and it was such an erotic film. So I feel like I got turned on. Does mm -hmm. that count? That's uh, that's what we go to the cinema for, isn't it? Yeah. Partly, you know, <laughs> let's be honest yeah. here. Yeah. Have you got a favorite screen 
musical moment or dance number? Well, Botrevai, the end of Botrevai. When they're all the last... on the beach. No, no. It's the last moment is after he's killed himself, um, Denis Levant, and, and, and he's in bed and he's going to, he's made it very nicely. And then for the, right before the credit scenes and then during the credit scenes, he's alone in a room dancing um, to uh, Rhythm is the Night. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a shot. So it's just Denis Laval in the Claire Denis film, Beau Travail. And, um, and, and, and it wasn't, yeah, it's, it, it takes you out of the movie and in the movie and out of the movie and in the movie. So that's what comes to mind. This is the rhythm of the night. What's your favorite cinema as you name as someone who names all the places that they've screened? What's your favorite cinema? I would have to say right now it's the Film Forum here in New York, because before the pandemic, I would go there with my kids and my husband and my children's mom and often her father, um, who's Dick. actually starring in a movie called uh, Dick Johnson. I, well, we've had you, we've had your 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 baby mother on on the show. She was on yes. not that long so ago. So we would all go every Sunday to something they had called Film Forum Junior. And we would watch movies together and we introduced our kids to Buster Keaton there and and to Sounder there and to um, Lily, uh, the musical. And so it was a great ritual, wonderful, beautiful family ritual, which which changed all our lives. And so. does, 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 does Kristen live? She, she lives like, next door. Next door. That's lives, right. I remember, yeah, I remember yeah. either it's either in the film of Dick Johnson or it, it, she told me that you live next door and then you can yeah, see them so listening. So we, yeah, so we, we live next door and we raise our two kids together. And Kirsten just got married. So her wife is living next door also. So Mazel tov. Yes. I think it's yes. the first time we've had the same apartment building on the show in two different rooms in the apartment exactly. building. So these, can is... be, these can be mirror <laughs> shows or something. Double feature. Yes, exactly. What's the best screening you've ever been to? I had a really, I mean, I had a really great screening of Frankie. It comes to mind. I don't know if it was the best in Toronto Film Festival, which was after Cannes. So Cannes was not the best screening in my life, but Toronto, for whatever reasons, the, the audience just really was with and understood the film so intimately. It was just a fantastic screening. And I, and I loved the movie in a way that was really fresh to me. So I think sometimes screenings like that are very, very meaningful. Um, but I was at some interesting, you know, I was at the first screening of Sex, Lies and Videotape in 1989 and it's Sundance Film Festival. Um, my father lived in Park City, so I started going to that festival when I was a teenager. That was a really fun festival. I remember seeing a film called It Was a Time in the East um, that was uh, a gay, queer, uh, Canadian film that I saw at a festival in Toronto in the late 80s that I really remember really well. I love how- I saw, I saw Paris is Burning before it before it was finished. So I, a rough cut of Paris is Burning was a great screening for me. I think Paris is Burning should look like a rough cut. It has, yeah. that, it is a rough cut. Yeah, yeah, it was very exciting. How fantastic. I'm just gonna finish, I know we've talked about your location in Frankie being such a character, but what's your favorite film location that either you've used or shot in or that you've seen on screen and just thought, wow. Frankie is, is inspired by this film by uh, Sacha G. Ray called Kanchanjunga. 
Did I just mention you this? You mentioned I, that I, at the start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that 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 is a very powerful location, which is on the top of the Himalaya Mountains. So that really comes to mind. Yeah. And for some reason, I'm, I thought of Beware of the Holy Whore. Um, I'm really interested in the, the Fassbender film, which is about the making of a movie. And I would be very interested to be in the house where they shot that film. I'm very curious what it would look like or what it does look like or where it is. <laughs> does it, it's probably in Berlin somewhere. I should have thought. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Well, he was in Munich. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm not sure where they shot that. It doesn't seem like it was in a city. It was a big kind of mansion with lots of stairwells and a and a, a great terrace. And I'm curious about that. And and you know, in Journey to Italy, I just saw there's a terrace looking with that that is a real location with Vesuvius in the background. I'd be curious where that was shot too. <laughs> it sounds like a, yeah, it sounds like a. Well, if it's Vesuvius, it'll be done like Naples or you know, in the yeah, Bay of Sorrento. Yeah, it was Sorrento. in Naples, but so, what, what was the house? Yes, was you want house? to go to the house. I got married with Naples with Vesuvius in the background in, oh, in, in Sorrento, yes. So, yeah. Wow. So, But maybe it was that house. I don't know. <laughs> wow. And have you seen the movie since you got married? I, I haven't, you know, actually. I mean, it was one of the mood movies we saw because La Dolce, uh, we had a La Dolce Vita themed wedding, but um, oh. but it's about Journey to Italy, is there something with it? But I, absolutely right. I don't I don't recall that shot. I'm going to have to How go trace it. How long have you been there. married then? Uh, 15 years this summer, very nearly 15 years, yeah. Right. So so they were they had been married eight years when they in the characters in the film, the marriage in the film. So I'll be curious how it res. I find that movie, which I saw yesterday, any time you see it, you're going to respond to it differently. That's what's brilliant about movies. Uh, we respond to them differently throughout this. And most recently now with audiences, you mentioned audiences and the screening that you had in Toronto and Canada, different audiences. Uh, but it's, uh, it'll be fantastic to get back to this. You've been back to the big, you've been back to the big screen since they all opened? I have not. I have not. Hurry. Uh, you know, I, 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 I watch so many films with my kids and they're not vaccinated, so we're not going, but I will go back soon. But I've become, I never used to watch movies that I hadn't seen on TV at all. I just didn't like it. I didn't like the experience. And I, I have adapted. And I've seen like 150 movies with my kids in the last few months, last 14 months. And so I've, so like, I'm interested in watching all the, you know, I go down certain rabbit holes, which is exciting to discover things. No, well, but, but, but cinema, cinema, because for example, a film like Journey to Italy would never work outside of the cinema. And a film like Frankie is better in the cinema. I'll tell you that. I think they all slightly work better in the cinema. I think they do. I don't. They're all different. I know what that. That's for sure. You see the. Yeah. You see the the the, the textures and oh everything. Uh, Ira, I could talk all week with you <laughs> about yeah, these a... fantastic films. Really, really, really fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on Frankie. I know it must seem a, a long time ago uh, that it came out, uh, but it, it's great to be sharing that on the big screen here in London. I can tell yeah. you that people it'll, and well, given the travel restrictions, uh, people will. Uh, it's like going on a holiday that one. So uh, it'll be. Uh, very precious a gift. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope we get a chance to do this again. It's yeah. fun to talk movies with you. You too. Cheers, Ira. Bye-bye. So many wonderful film recommendations there to educate even the most ardent and knowledgeable cinephile, uh, like me, for example. I didn't know half of those that he was talking about. Preston Sturgis is easy living, Sajidit Ray, Fassbinder, uh, Eric Roma, Anna Morris Piella, Lulu. We always give you the classy stuff on seeing any good films lately, don't we? Talking of classy, it doesn't get more top draw than Tilda Swinton and Pedro Almodovar. 
they're together in an adaptation of a Jean Cocteau play, The Human Voice, La Voix Humaine, which puts Tilda as a woman scorned and on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Typical Almodovar, that one. Uh, in a very typically Almodovar interior, all bright furnishings and a kind of beautiful kitchen cupboards. She walks around it having a conversation with her ex about moving out and about breaking up. short film a sort of lockdown experiment that uh, premiered at the venice film festival which i was lucky enough to see there uh way back last september it looks great obviously and it has layers of artifice as the apartment is revealed to be more than just an apartment for example however despite my admiration for both these talents there's something off about the human voice for me it's too stagey too shouty it's very rare that i don't love tilda on screen and the same for Pedro. But this is just stilted and two-mannered for me, even in its 30 minutes. Too much. So how about I tell you about something good I've seen lately. Here are Jason's three to see that you can do right now. Cruella, definitely, even though I have caveats about it, definitely worth seeing. Uh, First Cow by Kelly Reichardt beautiful indie movie and yeah if you haven't seen it already uh try and get to see quiet place 2 which would be the great one to go back to the cinema for quiet place 2 emily blunt uh and uh, killian murphy i talked about it last week uh, that should get you really back into the cinemas and sort of re- relish seeing it together in the dark so there's my three to see but i'm going to tell you about a little secret i'm going to tell you about one of the best concert movies ever made honest It's not out till July, but it's called Summer of Soul. It's put together by Questlove, uh, the drummer from The Roots and Late Night American TV. He was the musical director of the Oscars this year. Uh, He was given the footage. It was found in a vault 50 years after it was shot. Now, this was stuff covering the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969, dubbed at the time the Black Woodstock, but it was overshadowed and written out of history by that hairy, hippie, muddy fest on the farm about 100 miles upstate, Woodstock. But now, fully contextualised, Summer of Soul is in full swing, 50 years after the event. Uh, It's dubbed uh, This Revolution Could Not Be Televised, but now at last you can see The Fifth Dimension, Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder at 19 years old, Max Roach with Abby Lincoln, Mahalia Jackson with Mavis Staples, Nina Simone. I mean, the lineup is jaw-dropping. You just keep thinking, who's coming on next? Oh my God. The politics are searing and sadly still relevant. The result is a glorious, rhapsodic, soulful documentary and concert movie. I can't stop talking about it, even if they, the man, doesn't want me to, because they're worried I'll break an embargo and not cover it on release. Believe me, we'll be covering this film a lot. It is going to be one of the films of the year. So let's go out with a righteous number from the show, with Gladys Knight and her brilliant backing group, The Pips, 
their dance routine to this is just awesome. Uh, it's a Motown super classic. So don't forget when you talk about Summer of Soul, you heard it through seen any good films lately. See ya. Oh. 